You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Just before we get into this story, a quick warning. There is some strong language and I guess adult themes in this interview. So if you're listening with small ones around, you may want to save this one till later. One of the more interesting things about living through the coronavirus is witnessing the federal government really swing into action and to see how people mostly fall into line with that action. It's incredible to see what can be done when the threat is real, which makes me wonder about domestic violence in Australia. I know it's a completely different problem, but bear with me. We know in Australia that one woman every week is murdered by their current or former partner. One in four have experienced emotional abuse by a current or former partner by the age of 15. Those statistics mean that domestic violence is likely to affect someone you know, a real threat to our lives and the community we live in. And yet, the kind of action that has seen us slow a global pandemic has not happened. The attention will flare up when a particularly brutal murder hits the headlines and then it will fade away until it happens again. Jess Hill is a journalist who wanted to understand why domestic violence is so prevalent in Australia. Her book is called See What You Made Me Do. Hi, Jess. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. So you've been a Middle Eastern correspondent and worked on many different investigative stories. What made you turn your attention to domestic violence? You know, I think that, I mean, it it was totally by chance to start with um, in that I just had an editor ask me to do it. And they asked me to do, you know, write four and a half thousand words. Um, and for people who aren't, you know, familiar with how significant that is, like that, that's about three times the length of a long article in a newspaper, <laughs> you know. So, so that, you know, that you, you really have to dig deep to, to do that. And so I, when I first got asked, I think that my first response was, oh, that's very important. Um, yes, of course, I should do it. But I wasn't that fascinated. I mean, I wasn't fascinated at all. Um, In fact, I didn't even know how I would feel four and a half thousand words. And so I guess I was sort of propelled along by this feeling that this needs to be given adequate attention, but it wasn't an obsession until probably about three weeks in when I realized that really like at the heart of domestic abuse is power and control. And when I realized how that echoes across all of our lives, you know, how we all have to negotiate power, control, entitlement, etc. Suddenly, I just needed to know everything I possibly could about it. Um, so, so it sort of spun out from there. And I spent a year reporting on it, and especially on the family law courts. Um, and then I, yeah, started writing the book. So it's been six years now. Wow. Um, and of course, this most recently, we've had the lockdown with COVID-19 and there have been a, a few stories about how that's uh, impacted the rates of domestic violence. Um, we are easing out of the restrictions now, but what impact has the lockdown had on women in particular who suffer from domestic violence? Well, you know, like on a worldwide scale, it's enormous. Um, so the UN has called domestic abuse a shadow pandemic and they're really urging governments as a matter of priority to address it um, in as they're doing all their coronavirus measures. I remember 
but early in the piece, it just really occurred to me that like the domestic violence is obviously going to escalate around when when we have people sort of in a in a situation of social isolation, but also in economic insecurity and all of that sort of thing. But it, it just sort of occurred to me like this is this is a public health crisis, and we do treat it like a public health crisis. Um, you know, this is something that is absolutely on par with coronavirus, and will work like it will work in parallel. You know, the worse coronavirus gets, and the more isolated we are, the worse violence will get um you know we've seen violent crime all sorts of crimes have gone down and domestic violence has gone up um in some areas it's remained stable but basically police stats that show that in general you see you know places like coffs harbour other places have gone up 50 percent. some places have gone down um but essentially what we're seeing is that frontline services are getting an increase in calls beginning but it's like an increase in the complexity of what they're having to deal with um you know family court had about 39 percent increase in urgent applications so we're seeing like because you know remembering that only about 20 percent of people experiencing domestic abuse right now have ever called the police so when we look at police statistics we're seeing like the very tip of the iceberg and, you know, hard to say, why would more people call police now? Is it because they feel like they actually have no other option? Because a lot of people will not call police unless they feel that. Or that, you know, there are more neighbours home listening and calling police on their behalf. Um, we know from hospitals that, say, for example, the Queensland Health Minister said the other day that there'd been this massive drop in trauma accidents and sporting accidents, but that had unfortunately been offset by the increase in domestic violence-related um, visits to trauma uh, to the hospital um, so there's all of these kind of indications of what's going on out there but I guess that you know this is a massively unreported issue not just to police but to services so we only see when people surface um, and that's all that we can measure so obviously things like homicide we can measure that but and and emergency room visits we can sort of measure if they say where you know why they're there um but everything else is kind of unknown and like i said in the intro we've seen how the government has swung into action and then the community has to a degree followed through when it comes to coronavirus in terms of the restrictions like they are huge and sweeping and life-changing like the biggest changes we've ever seen and people generally because of the fear of the coronavirus um, pandemic have followed through um, when it comes to domestic violence have we seen enough government action and how how tied into it is the community response as well. So for coronavirus, for the pandemic to be stopped in its tracks or to be slowed down, it needed a, the combination of both. It, need government, it needed government leadership and people to follow that leadership. Um, I'm just wondering what that relationship is like, in your view, um, between the government and the community when it comes to domestic violence. Because I don't know that many people see domestic violence as on a, on a similar scale of threat. Well, people generally think it won't happen to them. So there's a feeling of exceptionalism. And what I confront and have confronted in myself and uh, as well is the fact that there is no, there's no victim profile. There's nothing that makes um, someone uniquely susceptible to being a victim. I mean, there are certain things that may 
predispose someone to being more vulnerable. But when you look at the types of people who are drawn in, you know, like an incredible number of health workers are victims of, of domestic and intimate partner violence. Um, you know, so there's, we can't spot a victim from far away. And what I've tried to really make clear in the book is that it's really much more about what makes men susceptible to being an abuser, not what makes someone susceptible to being abused. And, the, and what that opens up is the idea that, you know, any one of us could fall in love with someone that we, we don't spot. There's, we think there's going to be these big red flags. Sometimes there really isn't. And then we can find ourselves in a situation where we literally are trapped. Um, so, so first, I think people need to, and this is a very, very hard thing to get people to understand, that all of us and all of our friends and family are vulnerable to domestic violence. Um, but I think that in terms of why people have followed the coronavirus restrictions, as we saw early on, before the police really kicked into gear, um, people were still out and about. Like, I live in Bondi and, and no one was, you know, there wasn't that much fear here and people were still out, you know, on the beaches um, and in, in, you know, great numbers. It wasn't until the police stepped in and started arresting and fining people that that really changed. And part of what I look at in the book is I don't think that the criminal justice system is the be-all and end-all solution. But one aspect of this problem is that perpetrators have the very real um, and, and understandable belief that they will get away with what they're doing unless they're clumsy, like unless they leave a mark or do something that is actually a crime. But a lot of what happens inside the most dangerous households, controlling behaviour, degradation, humiliation, threats, etc., creating this environment um, as happens in coercive control of confusion, contradiction, threat and fear, um, you know, that's not illegal. We don't have a crime against that. So it's very hard for people, and especially when they feel like if they report their, you know, their loved ones may be, may be under threat, um, as, as so often happens in these relationships. Um, so it's very difficult for people to get um, any kind of justice system response. Um, and that's why you only have, you know, 20% of people reporting, because a lot of them don't feel like what's happening to them will, will warrant a justice system response, even when they feel afraid for their life. Um, so I looked at solutions in the book, which, which looked at really um, combining a much more um, assertive justice system response with a, an assertive response from community sectors, from the domestic violence sector, but working all together. So basically to say to perpetrators, we love you, we respect you as, as a member of the community and we want you to come back. We want you to change your behaviour. We don't condemn you and exile you, but you need to change in significant ways in order for, for, for you to come back into the community because what you're doing right now is intolerable and we're, we're absolutely against it. Um, and we will help you. If you want to come to us, we'll help you with whatever problems you have. Um, and, but if you don't, then the justice system is going to find a way to make your life help, you know. And you, but unless you have everybody working together and saying, look, you know, this is not just about putting a whole bunch of people in jail, but it's about saying that unless you stop offending, unless you stop making your partners and your kids' lives um, a misery, then we're going to find a way to, to get you, um, in, you know, engaged with the justice system. Um, and where we've seen those strategies work in the States especially, we've seen amazing reductions in domestic homicide, in re-victimisation rates, um, but, you know, unless you 
take the responsibility away from the victim to keep themselves safe because at the moment it's all up to the victim and sometimes their children to keep themselves safe and the justice system sort of waits for them you know um unless you take that out of their hands and be much more assertive and say, okay, we know a lot of the time we know who's doing this um, or somebody knows who's doing this. So we need to step in more assertively and say, this is not between you and your victim anymore. This is between us. This is between the community, the police, the justice system and the perpetrator. We're keeping eyes on you now. Um, so don't, you know, don't bother making threats against her. Don't bother making threats against the kids that, you know, it's not about them anymore you know, stop offending or we're going to send you to prison. Um, That's, and, you know, I know people are are very, can be a bit suspicious about these sorts of responses that include a lot of police action or a lot of, you know, really get the justice system involved. But I just don't see an alternative. And I think when you see coronavirus, like, I don't like the fact that police were arresting people when they were sitting on park benches. I mean, I think some of it was heavy-handed. Police generally... Um, are heavy-handed. <laughs> you know, that's like there's there's power issues in the police that have been there long before coronavirus ever was, um, and that's why in the in the book I also look at the system of women's only police stations um, that works particularly well in Latin America, which is basically looking at a very different way of policing issues like family violence, which is saying instead of like we're just um, we're coming at you because you've committed a crime, it's the police working together with the victim and saying, what is it that you need? Do you need us to come to the house and just tell him to get out? Do you need, <laughs> do you need us to just have a chat to him? Do you need, how can we get engaged in that early phase and just let him know that we've got eyes on him but not take the power entirely away from you? So there's all different ways to come at this and, and they seem radical except for the fact that they are already working in various places. And how do you communicate that kind of idea? Because what you're, what you're talking about is a shift in the way we think about it in the community as well as the justice system, as well as government. And in the past, the government has tried to do that through advertising. But as you speak about in your book, um, all the wave of anti-domestic violence ads that came out actually made it harder for women. Can you talk about how that worked and what the impact those kind of ads had? Look, you know, and some of those ads will have been effective in, in their own ways. Um, the, the problem is when you get ads on, on television about domestic violence and they're sort of, you know, threatened to come down really hard and, and they're talk, telling bystanders to call out their mates and all the rest of it, the effect of that on somebody who's, ex, who's perpetrating domestic violence can be humiliation. Um, it can be a, a feeling of being shamed and the response that they generally have to those feelings is one of anger and one of wanting to um, to blame that on somebody else and to take it out on someone else. So on, at the helpline, one of the helplines I visited, um, the head of Safe Steps said to me that they would get calls saying, you know, can you please take that domestic violence ad off TV because every time he sees it, he goes nuts. You know, um, so... What I, what I think that sometimes, and I hate the term virtue signalling, um, I think it gets really badly used, but I'm just going to use it here advisedly to say that sometimes these ads, they're much more about virtue signalling to the public that the government is doing something than really grappling with what it is to communicate with, especially not just with victims, but to somehow communicate with perpetrators. And they are the most difficult people to communicate on, on this subject with because 
a lot of them really believe they are the victims. Like they literally believe that they are acting in self-defense against being humiliated, being betrayed, being defied, being all the things that they, that like when people will say, people will say, you know, we need respectful relationships. Perpetrators will be the first ones to say, damn right we do. Damn right we need respect. Where's my respect? You know what I mean? Like, so we think those words have one, have one interpretation and we see respect in a particular way. They see respect in a whole different way. Um, and respect is a very strong word for them. So I, you know, I spoke to this guy um, who, who'd written a lot of ads, um, anti-smoking ads, anti-drink driving ads. And, and he was saying when he looks at those ads, he doesn't see a, a clear understanding of the people that you're actually trying to stop doing that behavior, you know, and that, that what he sees is yeah, the same thing that it literally will just provoke. Um, and that's, what's very, very difficult. It's like, who do we want to talk to with these ads? Do we want to just keep talking to the people who need to get away from, from these perpetrators? Um, and then, and, and then what are we offering them? Like we have a refuge system that is essentially broken in terms of the, the system that we had from the seventies onwards, which was, women and children need to flee threat of homicide um, and physical violence. They go to a refuge, they get protection and they get advice and they get cared for. Well, now almost in every instance, almost a woman and child is taken to a motel because there's no beds left, you know, so they'll wait there sometimes for two or three nights, sometimes for longer. And in the meantime, they may have tracking devices on their phone. There may be a tracking device in the kid's toy. Um, the guy may be calling and texting multiple times a day. They don't have any, they don't have someone there to tell them what's going on or to just talk them through it and be there for them in those moments. You know, they might have a caseworker visit occasionally and, and take them through what, what's going to happen next. But what they need is someone to unpick the incredibly traumatic and complex thing that's just happened to them and the, and deal with their massive trauma. Um, and that's the thing in refuges, you know, you have toys for the kids. You have people who help you look after them. Like you're in a hotel with your kid. Might sound nice to people. Oh, you've got a hotel room. You're safe. But you're in one room. You've left everything behind. You may have a dollar fifty in your pocket. You're looking at your child going, what the hell have I done? I've left what we knew and what was our home for this and with no certain future. So, you know, we have these ads that say, like, we'll help you, you know, just um, either just leave or if you, if you are afraid, these services are here to help you. But the services don't get the funding and the support that they need to be able to fulfil that promise. Mm-hmm. So it's really like, you know, and, and especially now, I mean, the government's put about 150, I think, million um, into domestic violence. There's various different things they're funding, but um, primarily the helplines Obviously, there needs to be funding for helplines. You know, helplines are always getting more calls than they can manage. But unless you look at things like crisis accommodation and at least just shore up that first crisis response level, then, like, why would you encourage a woman to leave and enter into a very dangerous situation when we don't actually have a safety net there for her to jump into? Mm. When you talk about shame with the perpetrators and trying to speak to them without uh, triggering their shame, it's such a complex emotion and such a a difficult one to deal with. I mean, where do you see 
is it about addressing the adults where they are or are you um, also looking at how, I mean, I've got a boy, I'm very conscious of, well, I've got a boy and a girl, I'm very conscious of any kind of shame that might come with the way I discipline them or those sorts of things. So as a parent, I'm conscious of that. Um, but you, you have a lot more um, leeway when you're dealing with children to bring them up without those triggers. How do you address it in an adult? Yes. Look, and, and extremely difficultly. And, and I don't think that, like, I don't sort of advocate mollycoddling abusive people you know like so it's not so much that like we have to sort of tiptoe around them or anything like that what I guess I'm sort of when I look at um say some of the men's behavior change programs that have been really effective or the the ways in which you can approach men about these issues that does actually get to where they're coming from um you know, it doesn't come from like, well, I need to re-educate you first about your entitlement and I need to re-educate you about gender roles and all that sort of stuff. That's all part of it. That that comes later. But obviously the first thing you've got to be engaging is like, what's happening for you, you know? And so the, the clearest sort of example of like, column A, not so good, column B, maybe better. Um, <laughs> some, there was an ad that ran in Victoria. Um, I think it was it was a government um, funded ad and it was a group of guys who were all sitting around a pub and they're having beers and the wife calls up one of the guys and he's talking to her. It's clear that he's abusive. You know, he's saying things like, you know, he's criticizing what she's going to cook for dinner. He's saying, why are you so useless? Don't blah, blah, blah. All that stuff that, you know, that we just hear and immediately our, our hackles go up. And you can see his friends getting sort of uncomfortable. And then he hangs up the phone and one guy says, you know, mate, that's not on, whatever he says, you know. And then the guy's like, oh, come on. And then another friend goes, no, nah, mate, no, nah, mate, you know. And it's sort of like just shutting it down, shut it down. And I'm looking at that going, okay, so that guy has just been shut down by two of his friends. What's he feeling right now? He's probably feeling humiliated. He's probably feeling shamed. Where's he going to take that when he comes home from the pub? Um, and so I, I mean, I just think ads like that are a disaster. Now, what would it look like to actually in that ad model a different kind of masculinity and a different kind of engagement between male friends? And when that guy hangs up the phone, instead of like one guy calling him out in front of the entire group, which by the way, is potentially dangerous in its own self, because who knows who's got the power in that group. And, you know, like you could call that out and all your friends could tell you to fuck off and never invite you out again, you know, just saying, um, but, um, but take him aside and just go, Hey man, you know what you were saying? Sorry, I say that again. Um, take him aside and just say, Hey man, you know what you were saying just then to Rebecca? Like, what's going on there? That doesn't sound like you, you know, just have a conversation instead of re-inscribing this whole thing of men just shut each other down because that's what, that is the problem is that men don't get, you know, when we bring up boys and they, and they become men, there's this feeling as they grow older, close friends sort of drop away. They got mates, they got mates, but they don't have people who they feel confident to share secrets. And I'm talking very generally here. I'm not talking about obviously every guy. Um, and so the partner has to step into so many different roles. They have to step into that friend role that they can't quite get with their male friends. They have to step into a mothering role. They have to step into, you know, a lover role, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's an impossible ask because these guys don't have these close relationships 
as, as so many women do, to really fl- thrash all this stuff out. So it's like, why not having these ads and encouragement to say, next time you see something that concerns you about a mate, try to have a heart-to-heart conversation about rather than being like a good bystander and just shutting him down and showing him what a prick he is. <laughs> yeah, which is very tempting at the same time. Um, I think one of the things that knowing how many people are affected by domestic violence and looking at what a big issue it is, I think on a very personal level, what is difficult is when you know someone, either a friend or um it's a neighbor. Like I actually, I was in a situation once where I heard someone upstairs yelling at his wife and sounding really violent, whether he hit her or not. We didn't hear that, but we, I was texting another neighbor because we live in a block of units going, should we do something about this? Like we were worried that if we, we had seen the ads, we knew we needed to call it out. But at the same time, we're like, well, if we call someone, then is it going to make it worse? Is it going to, we all had young children, is it going to make it worse for our kids? And all these complex things came in and I thought it was very clear cut what I would do in that situation. But when it happened, I didn't know the right thing to do. And I imagine it, it increases in complexity the closer you are to the person who's going through it. I mean, do you, in all your research, have you found the right response? Do you have any advice for that situation? Yeah, it's very difficult. I totally understand that. You know, some people will take the risk and go and knock on the door, um, but obviously that's that's something to do extremely cautiously because, you know, police will say domestic violence call-outs can be the most dangerous, you know, call-outs that they do um, because you just don't know. You actually don't know how dangerous that person is behind the wall. Um, even if you know that person, you don't know how dangerous they are in that state. Um, so... You know, for me, I think if there's, if you're a neighbour and something is happening that is really concerning, where you're like, where you're hearing something and you think someone is either being harmed or about to be harmed, then you call police. Um, And that's a very, it's a very difficult decision to make because it, it ramps up a whole response, right? That is then out of everybody's hands. But I think the alternative now, as we know, is so it can be so dire um, that it sort of it feels like we have to do the take the conservative option, um, but you know, and then I mean it depends. If you feel like you've got some connection with that neighbour and you want to take a chance, or, or even like just sort of like put a broom up on the ceiling, you know, like even just something to indicate that you're listening and someone's there, that can be just enough to snap people out. Um, or knock on the door and say, if you know, guys, I'm going to have to call the police if this doesn't stop. You know, you don't need to, like, go in and actually confront and stand in the middle of the two. There, There is sort of like a halfway measure. And, and then, of course, if that doesn't work, then obviously you just need to call police. Um, I think for when you're managing a situation with a friend um, that's maybe ongoing where you're just getting more and more concerned you know, there's a lot of people who will stick close to someone who they're really worried is in an abusive relationship. They'll give them all the advice and they'll talk with them sort of, you know, what feels like ad nauseum about it. And then when that you know person stays against all the advice that you're giving and, and all the obvious signs that you can see that this is dangerous, 
then it's it's a pretty natural process for you to sort of like step away and move away from that friend. And unfortunately, what happens is that friend gets more and more isolated, whether or whether they are being isolated intentionally by the perpetrator or whether it's just their friends can't put up with it anymore. They just can't stand it. It's too upsetting. Um, so part of what I talk about, and this is um, Domestic Violence Resource Centre of Victoria, has a great sort of guide on how to talk to people that you care for who you think are in an abusive relationship. And, and part of what I talk about and they talk about is, you know, when you're talking to someone about their partner, don't condemn that person. You can condemn their behaviour, but as soon as you start condemning the person, you know, your friend's just going to start to get really defensive because they're just going to, they're, they're going to say, you don't know him like I do. Oh, it's not because of that or blah, blah, blah. So you don't want to get into those weeds. You just want to get into like, but do you see what he's doing here? Like, can you see this behavior? I'm worried about what the, how that's affecting you. I, I'm seeing these changes in you. Or have you, you know, have you ever worried about how that might be affecting the kids? Or what, you know, asks questions like, what are you afraid of if you leave? Um, or what are you afraid of if you stay? You know, but just get them to start opening up. But don't predicate your connection with that person on them following through and doing what you think they should do. Because the point is they know all sorts of things that they may not be telling you, um, but they have a sense of that person and that relationship and, and they are obviously have all the other things going on, love, attachment, loyalty, etc. It's a very difficult thing to leave. It's why people take on average seven times to leave for good and people go back and forth and back and forth. That's not because your, your friend or loved one is like, you know, uniquely confused or has a major problem. That's just normal. Um, so the point is just to really say that you're going to be there without judgment and even if they're driving you around the twist and you just cannot believe that they're still with this person, just try to hang in there as best you can while still looking after yourself in that. Um, and just say, like, anytime you want to call, anytime you feel like you want help, three o'clock in the morning, just call me. You know, that is the biggest lifeline someone can have is just knowing that even if they've, you know, even if they've just worn all their friends out, there's still someone who's going to be there. Yeah. That's good advice. Jess, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Sean. That's Jess Hill. She's the author of See What You Made Me Do. And if you'd like a copy, there are links in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.